This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Historic preservationists know that our work isn't just about physically preserving historic buildings, structures, and sites. It's also about preserving and celebrating the intangible heritage and culture of people in their communities. I would be remiss, and so would this podcast, if we didn't lead by acknowledging the heartbreaking conflict in Ukraine and the value and importance of those intangible pieces of the Ukrainian identity, too. On this special edition of PreserveCast, we're sitting down with Rachel Retaliata to discuss what's at risk as this illegal and unjust invasion drags on. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast on this special edition of PreserveCast, where we're going to be talking about the high stakes for cultural and heritage resources in Ukraine uh, as a result of the Russian invasion. And we're speaking today with Rachel Retaliata, who is a preservation professional based in Texas who has spent time overseas, specifically in Eastern Europe, looking at cultural heritage resources uh, in that area of the world. Um, and it seems like a perfect time to talk about this issue. Um, obviously, we want to be clear up front that first and foremost, the humanitarian loss um, and the loss of lives, uh, you know, remains the, the primary concern. Um, and, you know, as this podcast is being recorded, it, it remains to be seen how this entire conflict will play out. But in addition to human loss, there's obviously a tremendous loss of cultural resources and the potential for losing some really important things um, in this incredibly historic region of the world. Um, but before we get started, we want to introduce our guest, Rachel Retaliata. And so, Rachel, where'd you grow up um, and how did you end up researching the world of Eastern European cultural heritage? Thank you, Nick. Uh, well, my family is based in Maryland, but I was raised in a military family. I was uh, born and lived throughout the southern U.S. and lived abroad in Germany and Panama. I was um, very fortunate that my parents made moving and traveling very exciting for my brother and I. So we were always seeking out the heritage sites and the history of the new places we were living, which developed an interest in cultural resources early on, I think. Uh, my father's side of the family is Ukrainian. And my Ukrainian family immigrated to the U.S. as refugees after World War II. So my great-grandparents, my Baba and Dita, and their children had been forced into labor camps in Germany. And following liberation, they were lucky enough to be sponsored by a Ukrainian farmer in southern Maryland. And uh, so they moved to Maryland and eventually settled in a row home in Baltimore near Patterson Park, uh, where my Dita worked at the Domino Sugar Factory. Uh, so many thanks to Preservation Maryland for the recent blog post about the contributions of Ukrainian immigrants in Maryland. I think that historical context is really important in times like these. Um, additionally, my maiden name is Ukrainian. It's spelled with a silent J. So I spent my whole life explaining my family heritage during every first encounter and really internalized uh, the sense of Ukrainian identity, which I think is common for many Americans. Um, so it just so happened that when I was completing my undergraduate uh, degree in history, uh, we really began reckoning with our commemorative landscape in the U.S. and questioning why we were complacent with and complicit in honoring people and symbols that represent uh, slavery, oppression, racism, etc. And so in considering these questions, I was really drawn in by the monumental landscape in Eastern Europe. So I went on to pursue research of public monuments and their relationship 
to national identity construction in the Republic of Moldova. Um, I was there as a Fulbright researcher. And Moldova was once part of the Russian Empire, uh, the Kingdom of Greater Romania, the Soviet Union, and is now independent. And monuments from all of these eras still exist on that landscape. Um, and so this is this history and this level of commemoration is very similar to that of Ukraine. So I was fortunate to get to visit Ukraine in preparation for my research year and while in Moldova. Um, so while I was studying in Romania, my Romanian professor uh, brought my husband and I to her, her village um, where she grew up, which is a Romanian village in Ukraine called Apsha Dejos in the southwest of Ukraine. Um, and I think this visit really unlocked some childhood memories for me um, of visiting my Baba in her row home in Baltimore and playing in her very lush garden full of dill and cucumbers. Um, and I was also able to visit Kiev during my Fulbright research year. So uh, later during grad school, I interned in, in Vilnius, Lithuania and uh, with U.S. ICOMOS. And my time there really helped me develop my research that was focused on heritage diplomacy and uh, the preservation of dark heritage sites, which are those sites that are associated with trauma. So a, a deep experience in Eastern Europe, not only in, in the blood, but also the experience of going overseas as a Fulbright um, and kind of getting to sink your teeth into this. I'm curious, um, could you speak any of the languages when you went over there? It seems like a place, I mean, obviously a lot of people speak English, but um, what's your fluency and what what languages can you speak? Yes. Um, so I chose to study Russian as soon as I had the opportunity to in college. So Ukrainian was not available. It is some places, um, but not a lot. And uh, studying Russian was another way to really uh, explore that heritage connection. And it was... Um, and also in preparation for my research in Moldova, I spent two summers uh, studying Romanian in Romania. So I always say that I love languages, but I'm not great at languages. Um, so it's a constant work in progress. But I would say that my, uh, my highest achievement was during my Fulbright year. So my husband and I, we traveled to the south of Moldova for research. Um, and we stopped at a museum in Leova. And the curator there stopped everything she was doing uh, to give us a tour of the town in Romanian. And she showed us everything. So from cobblestone streets that were laid by German POWs during World War II um, to the Soviet theater um, and also a historic synagogue that was converted into a gymnasium during the Soviet era. So the, the interior featured wall-to-wall -wall trampolines. And because that space was utilized during um, the Soviet era, the synagogue is still one of the few remaining synagogues in Moldova. So it's one of my favorite examples of adaptive reuse. Um, but from Leova, we then went to a neighboring Russian-speaking town to visit a, the only horse farm in the country that breeds Orlov trotters, which was the preferred breed of the Russian empire. Um, so that was probably the peak of my language speaking ability um, to get to understand um, everything that we were we were treated to there. Um, so I can get by at least. But the, the, the lucky thing is that in Eastern Europe, uh, there's a really high level um, of English speaking um, in those areas. Fascinating. Um, we'll have to get you to give a plug for uh, PreserveCast in Russian. Um, oh, please no. <laughs> so... Let's talk about sort of the background of, of this war. I mean, there's been um, a lot written about, you know, obviously um, the the lead up to the war, the invasion, the illegality of it, the brutality of it. But 
uh, how has you know the, this is in some ways you know people look at like World War One and World War Two as two separate things, and it's really like World War One Part One and World War One Part Two, and so it's sort of this evolving story, and and that's similar in Ukraine where you have the conflict in uh, Crimea in 2014, and that kind of continues on. So how has that war been commemorated? You know, over the past eight years in in Ukraine, is that a part of this this memory of landscape? Absolutely, such a great question, and I'm sure um, that everyone has been taking in information at a very rapid pace at this point. Um, but for some general background, uh, the Euro, Euromaidan protests began in Kiev in 2013, and uh, when the government and the president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, decided not to sign the European Union Association Agreement um, and chose closer ties to Russia. And there was overwhelming public support to join the EU. And so Ukrainians took to the streets. And the Euromaidan protests um, led to the 2014 Revolution of Dignity, um, which led to the deaths of around 130 people in Kyiv and protests throughout Ukraine, um, and eventually to the ousting of um, President Yanukovych. And it brought a lot of government corruption to light. Um, So following the Revolution of Dignity in February 2014, Russia began the annexation of Crimea and um, and then the conflicts in eastern Ukraine and the, the Donbass region, which escalated to war. So the independent square in Kyiv, known as Maidan, um, which is where the revolution of dignity largely took place and where a lot of people lost their lives in those streets, um, has featured a memorial to those lives lost um, and the war in eastern Ukraine. So... Um, that war has been included in, in museum exhibits over the past eight years. The War Museum and the Motherland Monument, um, th- that monument is the one, the enormous steel monument holding the sword and shield. Um, so it's taller than the Statue of Liberty. Uh, but that there's a war museum in that monument, and it had an entire exhibit devoted to the ongoing war in eastern U- Ukraine when I was there in 2017, uh, which was very heartbreaking. So especially when you see these modern items curated in a war exhibit, something that you might use in your daily life. Um, in addition to that, the Museum of War in Eastern Ukraine opened in 2016 in Dnipropetrovsk, which is toward the east of Ukraine, but not quite Eastern Ukraine. Um, it features an outdoor display called the Roads of Donbass. So it includes street signs that showed the way to where major, major battles happened and also damaged vehicles, artillery, and other artifacts from war. Um, and then these are in, in addition to many art exhibits and protests and commemoration events that have taken place in protest of the annexation of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine over the past eight years. So there's a significant amount. It's interesting in, in such a short period of time, there's a significant amount of commemoration and monumentation going on. Is And I would imagine that that, that just is added to the landscape of commemoration and, and monumentation in such an old, you know, country like Ukraine. I mean, it, it must be layers on layers on layers of World War II and World War One and everything going way back. So it's this sort of this, this, this layer of this. What are the challenges? I mean, even prior to the invasion, what were the challenges in places like Moldova and places like Ukraine to doing cultural heritage preservation? Is Is the process similar to what we would be familiar with here in the United States? Well, uh, there are always funding issues. So I think we face that here in the U.S. also and all around the world. Um, I think that Ukraine has been fortunate to have such rich cultural resources and ancient sites 
that have the attention of international heritage organizations with access to funding. Um, but funding and corruption are significant barriers in Eastern Europe. So the cultural heritage organizations that I worked with in Moldova and Lithuania both came under threat of defunding and liquidation while I was with them. Um, so this is a very frequent routine thing that happens. Um, but I would also say that Eastern European countries have suffered from unregulated capitalist development in recent decades. So often the organizations that are supposed to be protecting um, historic structures and heritage sites, they're either involved in corruption or, um, you know, in some way, or they're the victims of corruption, um, or they simply just don't have the capacity to protect all of the resources that they need to. Um, so this is a particular problem for more modern cultural resources as well. Um, there's also been a lack of public participation in the process of heritage protection. So the public's not used to being asked, what do they think? What do you think of these resources? Um, here in the US, we're used to the public activating around and advocating for threatened structures. Um, fortunately, this is happening more increasingly in Eastern Europe, especially in, in recent years. Um, so people haven't had a really high level of confidence in governing, uh, in governing bodies. So that's an improving. I think it's improved in Russia um, since the, the ousting of President Yanukovych in 2014. So, uh, I mean, obviously, there's there's challenges associated with just preservation um, in a you know in a place like Ukraine prior to this invasion, but what type of heritage sites exist in these cities that are are most vulnerable in urban warfare? What what do we stand to lose? Um, understanding that so much has been damned. I mean, th these places have been through um, really terrible warfare over the course of the 20th century. I mean, I'm sure World War II significantly damaged the the historic resources of places like Kiev, but but what what do we stand to lose now? And and I mean, we can talk about maybe what can be done about it. But but what are heritage professionals in that part of the world most concerned about? Yeah, it's it's really overwhelming to think about the types of cultural resources that are in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine's just a little bit smaller than Texas. You know, it's the second largest country in Europe, second only to Russia. Um, so they just have such a wealth of cultural resources um, to start with. Ukraine has seven sites that are listed on the UNESCO World Heritage List, um, many of which are in urban areas, are, are in cities, um, such, a, such as uh, St. Sophia Cathedral and Kiev Pechersk Lavra. Um, there are 11th century Orthodox cathedrals and monasteries in Kiev. Um, so St. Sophia, it's laconic in design, has the world's largest um, collection of mosaics and frescoes from that time period inside of it. Um, the Lavra Monastery is a, is a huge complex with cave monasteries. Um, so St. Sophia was relatively close to the, the conflict during the Euromaidan protests and then the Revolution of, of Dignity. Um, so they're certainly at risk and would be just an irreplaceable loss. Um, then there's also the entire Lviv Historic Center, is listed on the UNESCO World Heritage uh, List. So um, Lviv was founded in 1254, and it has the largest number of architectural monuments in Ukraine. It's completely charming. Um, there's also the university campus in Chernitsi, which is, is listed on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Um, it's like a 19th century historicist um, architecture example, and that's located toward the Southwest of the country. Um, 
Then you also have ancient Byzantine ruins and sites in Crimea, which have been um, considered endangered since the Russian annexation. And that's because they're really using Crimea for commercial and military purposes. Um, So they've been considered endangered for some time now, since 2014. Um, There are also 17 sites uh, that are on the tentative list for the UNESCO World Heritage um, list. And they they include the Odessa City Center, um, so Odessa is often called an open-air museum, and also the Derzprom building in Kharkiv. Um, that's a constructivist structure um, that was built in the 20s, and it re- represents modernist architecture um, on the UNESCO World Heritage List or potential list. And we know that Kharkiv has been heavily bombed, um, so there's the possibility that this is already damaged. Um, and then there's there's obviously countless urban and rural cultural resources of importance outside the World Heritage List, including intangible cultural resources. So um, as we're speaking, thankfully, there hasn't been a, a full invasion of Kyiv at this time. Um, however, we know that the TV tower was the target of an airstrike. Um, and that in Kyiv is located very near the, the Babanyar Memorial which is the site of a mass grave where 33,000 Jews um, or more were murdered during the Holocaust. And uh, that memorial site includes public art installations, um, memorials to the Roma genocide, and the innocent children lost at war. Um, So I have seen recent reports that have claimed that that memorial site was not damaged, which is remarkable. Um, But of course, it doesn't erase the symbolism of that attack of a sacred space. And it does raise concerns for other sites of conscience and spaces for reflection and memory that are throughout that far throughout Ukraine. Um, and then, of course, there's rural sites. So wooden churches of the Carpathian region, um, villages that celebrate traditional heritage and collections of folk art as well. Yeah. And I would imagine the museums themselves. I and mean, we, we've been talking sort of about, about the built environment, but there are incredible collections of museums that um aren't being protected and 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 i mean that the russians have been um using carpet bombs and thermobaric uh weapons on civilians um doesn't bode well for um what they might do in terms of protecting cultural heritage or perhaps even looting it um so do we know how the museums are faring are they are they locking their things down have we heard any reports out of ukraine about the museums yeah, so uh, we do know at this time that the Ivankiv uh, Historical and Local History Museum, which is located in Kiev, I believe on the outskirts of Kiev, uh, has been destroyed in a Russian assault. Um, so that museum had a large and world-renowned collection of folk art. Um, and then there are concerns, museum professionals are expressing concerns about the looting of Ukrainian collections, um, much like what was seen during World War II. And so um, I know there is a museum in Kiev, I believe, that has the largest collection of Scythian gold. Um, so they're very concerned about that being looted and taken back to Russia. Um, I have been following uh, the accounts of the World Childhood Museum, which is a museum that's located in Bosnia, but they recently opened an exhibit in Kyiv. And um, their curators were able to evacuate some, but not all of their collection um, and and take that out of Ukraine. But there's still quite a bit that's left there. So I think that, you know, even though there was a big buildup to this war, uh, it did just 
at the same time happened suddenly. So people were going about their daily lives, um, you know, as if it was any normal day and then the invasion happened. So I think there's a big risk here uh, for museum collections um, all over the country. So prior to this current war, the the U.S. Department of State was investing and, and preserving in the region. Did it did it have much of an impact? Has the U.S. been able to help um, our partners over there? And you know, is this should we be as a country? You know, I mean, obviously we're not engaging directly in Ukraine, um, but it sort of seems like we need like a, a, a modern day monuments men effort to try and and save some of these resources. What what was state doing and and you know, what could they do in the future? So uh, the U.S. Department of State has had um, the Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation, um, which has been active since 2001. Um, so this was established to help countries preserve their cultural heritage and uh, demonst- demonstrate the U.S. respect for cultures around the world. And so um This program is very active in Eastern Europe. Um, Over 15 sites have received funds in Ukraine. Um, So project support has ranged, I believe, anywhere from $15,000 to $400,000. And it's gone to the architectural preservation of universities, museums, um, estates that date back to the 15th century, uh, to the restoration of Cossack naval vessels, uh, to wooden churches, and also materials conservation, um, for instance, for items from the national poet Shevchenko, um, in, in addition to the documentation of synagogues and the preservation of intangible heritage like that of the Crimean Tartars. Um, so that program not only helps preserve important cultural resources that obviously matter to Ukraine and Ukrainians. Um, But the selection of those resources is also a part of diplomacy. So it recognizes Ukraine's sovereignty, its diversity, um, the complex historical narrative there. Um, And there are other similar programs. USAID also helps with preserving cultural resources throughout Eastern Europe and the world. Um, And then there is also uh, a foundation in, based in the U.S. that helps to re- preserve Jewish sites abroad. And that's incredibly active in Eastern Europe as well um, and very necessary. And it seems like their, their work is going to be cut out, with, cut out for them sort of moving forward. I mean, obviously, whatever way this plays out, I mean, the damage to Ukraine above and beyond just the historic resources you know, it's. I've heard people say no one really is going to win this war at this point. I mean, it's because it's it's just so incredibly damaging. They're going to need a, a Marshall Plan to rebuild this country, um, and obviously, historic resources will play an, an important role in that, just because of the age of the country and the incredible heritage of it. Um, I mean, it obviously, state and everybody are going to have their their the work cut out for them. Is there? Have you heard? I mean, given the work that you've done in Eastern Europe any thought given to that? Or is it also fresh at this point that we're not even there yet? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it is also fresh right now. You know, we've spent, we're on day nine since the invasion, I think. And so the focus has largely been on human, humanitarian efforts, as you as you previously mentioned, which is obviously the priority. Um, just now in the last couple of days, I've seen more articles about concerns about cultural heritage. So I think that concern's been there from the beginning. Um, but the biggest concern is human life and people who are in Ukraine, you know, sheltering in the metros um, and in their homesteads and, you know, fleeing. Um, 
So no, I haven't heard yet. It just, it reminds me very much of the reconstruction of Warsaw, which almost didn't even happen, um, but is an amazing example of recovery um, post-war because Warsaw was nearly decimated or was completely decimated in World War II and has been reconstructed and is now on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Um, But there are also really great concerns, at least personally, but I think widely um, for cultural resources that might be lost and, and not replaced, you know, so it'll be there'll be a priority list, I'm sure, of what is reconstructed um, and what is not. And I think that there might be a really great loss of things um, such as modernist architecture. Yeah, give us some examples of those. I mean, I I think that's an interesting comment. Um, What are some of the more obscure ones or things that maybe people aren't thinking about? Many of the cultural resources that were created uh, during the Soviet, Soviet era have been highly stigmatized. Um, In recent years, uh, I would really say over the past decade, um, there have been official organized movements to protect these uh, resources. So uh, Soviet mosaics are a really great example of these cultural resources. Um, They're art pieces that were largely commissioned between the 1960s and the 1980s, um, largely in the 70s and 80s. And uh, the creation of these mosaics were often the only time that these artists had some liberty to express themselves due to the limitations of of Soviet rule. Um, The mosaics are often in the style of socialist realism. And uh, they tend to relate to the environment around them. So They're located in metros, on housing blocks, et cetera. So a mosaic near a hospital might feature themes of health and medicine, or a mosaic near a power plant will be themed about harnessing the power of electricity, et cetera. Um, So these are really fascinating, Um, not only to foreigners, but also, you know, they're becoming uh, more important to to locals in Eastern Europe as well. Um, And Ukraine has developed a Save Our Modernism um, movement. Um, But perhaps my my favorite Soviet-era cultural resource is the Soviet bus stop. Uh, So those are created throughout Eastern European countries, uh, not only in bigger cities like Kyiv, also in rural areas. And they're quite unique. And they were also a form of expression at the time. So a lot of them are geometric in nature. Um, Sometimes they're functional and sometimes they're not. So sometimes, you know, the only shelter you have at a bus stop is underneath a bird's wing. If there's a big bird sculpture or sometimes they're this, um, you know, kind of circus like circular structure, but the entire center um, is open. So you don't have any any um, shelter from rain or anything like that. Um, and they also often also sometimes feature murals and mosaics that are either uh, socialist, e- either in the style of socialist realism, or they're just surreal. Um, and then, you know, there's also brutalist and Soviet modern architecture. Uh, so in Kiev in particular, there's the Salute Hotel, which is a cylindrical modernist structure. And then there's the um, Flying Saucer which is uh, an institute to scientific research, but it was built to look like a flying saucer. And uh, so luckily the Save Save Ukrainian Modernism movement, I think I said our modernism earlier, um, Save Ukrainian Modernism movement uh, recently had those two um, pieces of architecture put under government protection in 2020. Um, So it would be just an incredible shame for them to be lost in war now. But, you know, a lot of this architecture... um, you know, it's it's sculpture, but at an architect 
architectural scale. So um, really, really important pieces as well. So obviously, we'll have to keep an eye on what happens there and maybe do an update as as this drags on. But, you know, I think it, it is easy to feel helpless kind of seeing all of this. And we're talking about the rich heritage, um, what has been done to date, what 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 is stand to um, potentially be lost, whether that be in museums, whether that be um, you know sort of these um, you know more vernacular pieces, and then the structural and um, architectural design pieces. But what what are some real actions that people can do um, to try and get engaged if, if they care about these resources? In addition to making a donation to the humanitarian effort, if they're concerned about sort of the heritage and history of these places. Um, do you have any ideas on what people can do? Sure. So like we mentioned before, I think we're only getting to the point now um, where we're getting a lot of coverage on concerns related to cultural heritage. Um, so for the time being, I think when we receive reports of sites and institutions that have um, been damaged or destroyed, such as Babinyar Holocaust Memorial Center or the Ivankiv Museum, I think it's helpful to follow them, um, their accounts on social media, or look at their websites for any updates that they might post about how you can help, um, any ways to assist them in recovery. Um, a very interesting opportunity that I've come across is the Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online. Um, that's Sucho.org, S-U-C-H-O.org. And uh, this is a group of cultural heritage professionals who are working together to archive um, sites, um, websites, digital content, and collections that are, are, are at risk. So they're asking for volunteers. So you don't have to be, you know, a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't have to be in tech, you know? You don't have to be a hacker. Um, just any person, any heritage professional, you don't need um, Ukrainian or Russian language skills. They're really looking for people to go in the Wayback Machine and look for collections and sites online and saving them to a database so that they don't get lost um, during this during uh, this conflict. And so I think that's a very interesting opportunity if anyone feels like they want to do something right now um, to go to sucho.org and sign up to volunteer. I also think it's helpful to be a part of international preservation organizations at this time. Um, so U.S. ICOMOS is the U.S. chapter for the International Council on Monuments and Sites. So um, ICOMOS is a network of people institutions, government agencies, um, and even corporations who support the conservation of world heritage. So, you know, ICOMOS will be monitoring the, the state of heritage in Ukraine during this time. And I'm sure that they'll be um, the best to look for updates on, uh, on what's happening, uh, what's been lost, and, um, and how we can move forward. Yeah, and I think look for an episode with them in the future. We'll try and uh, join somebody from Ikemos to hear what's going on. Um, Rachel, it has been a, um, you know, a, I'd li like to say pleasure, although the, the content is not pleasurable, but it's it's always good talking with you, getting to hear about this. Um, we'll put a link to your, uh, to your LinkedIn in the uh, show notes so if people want to connect with you, learn more about what you're working on and your work in Texas. Um, they can find out all about that. And we'll put a, a link as well in the so no show notes um, to uh, suco.org um, and uh, allow people to get engaged that way as well as um, ICOMOS. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Nick. 
Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.